Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. A Fine Time for Healing is a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well being are all that matter. So relax, have a cup of tea or coffee, and enjoy the show. Today we have with us Annabelle Arias. Annabelle is a clinical psychotherapist and relationship coach. She helps women who are anxious in their relationships and helps them change their attachment style. After seeing over 1,000 clients in her clinical practice, she understood that traditional therapy methods do not create lasting results and created her own signature method using EMDR and somatic therapy to heal relationship trauma. The empowered women method is what she created, and this helps break generational trauma and create fulfilling and healthy relationships. Welcome, mm-hmm. Annabelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, so a big, uh, you gave an amazing <laughs> intro. Don't have to add much to that. Uh, I guess what I would say is that the reason that um, I started the Empowered Love Method was because I started to see a gap in traditional therapy. And what was happening was I was, clients were coming to me for relationship issues and just different challenges with the closest people in their lives. This can be their mother, their father, a sibling, that there, it was just really triggering for them. And so what I noticed was in traditional therapy, you know, as therapists were really taught to treat the mind and how the mind works and the thoughts, right? And so that builds a lot of cognitive awareness. And so what was happening in the sessions is they were, they were getting all these connections. We were figuring out why, why this was happening, their, what happened in their childhood and things like that. And they were making really great connections. And they got it, right? The logical brain got it. Mm -hmm. But what was happening was they would go back into the environment that was triggering them. And it didn't matter what we talked about in therapy. It went out the window because what happens when we get triggered is the emotional brain takes over and the logical brain actually gets shut down for a period of time when you're going through that emotion. And so what I started to notice was that something was missing And that missing piece was really healing the body and healing that emotional response. Um, And I, now I do that with EMDR and the empowered love method. Well, that's great. I completely agree with you and with everything that you said. And I have the very same experience with my clients who, um, what I, what I tell them is what, you know, intellectually is not what you feel emotionally physically Mm -hmm. and when people come to me they're very frustrated because they can't understand why they can't bring those things together they know everything they you know and they just can't connect them and then you're right once we get them to a place where they feel really good sometimes i tell them don't go back into the environment if you don't have to but ultimately they will always try it at least (laughs) once and everything goes out the window Mm-hmm. everything is out the window. So mm-hmm. um, I completely agree with you. Yeah. And the I think the most hardest, the hardest part about that is that when they feel like they can't control it, because the logical part is saying you should be able to control yourself. You know, all these things, mm-hmm. the shame 
really sets in and it just spirals and just creates this, um, unhealthy relationship with what they're thinking and what they're feeling. You're absolutely right. Yeah. They start really becoming hard on themselves. And so, and then that perpetuates the issues that they're having, you know, so we have to take that apart. So I completely agree with you and I have seen the same thing. So um, I know that you focus on women and you said, you told me that you treat some men. So men, if you're listening, this is for you too. Okay. Don't Mm -hmm. go away. Um, You help women who are anxious in their relationships change their attachment style. So let's talk about attachment. What is an attachment? I know this is a big buzzword now in psychology. It is. I always say people, I always say to people, you know, it isn't just some trendy topic on social media or TikTok, right? Attachment styles actually comes from the attachment theory that was created by a psychologist. And he really studied the relationship between the mother and the child. And what he came to find out was that this relationship profoundly shaped how we emotionally respond to situations. And so he recognized that relationships were everything, that this really set the stage for how you would control your emotions, how you would calm yourself in stressful or just traumatic situations. And so this really sets the stage up for your closest relationships. Um, And what he noticed was he noticed three different types of behaviors in babies. This is a study done on on children and and, uh, six-month-year-olds. And he noticed three different types of behaviors. He noticed, and this is where attachment styles come from. He noticed the secure behavior, the anxious behavior, and the avoidant behavior. Do you want me to share with your audience the different, how these show these different behaviors show up? Okay. So the secure, he noticed that in in the secure baby, they were happy. They were laughing. They connected with their mom in a really um, positive way and they were able to explore. So they, they, they felt comfortable um, going to, to the other side of the room and playing with other kids and playing with different toys. And so he noticed that there wasn't a lot of fear around what the behaviors that the child was doing. And the anxious, he noticed that when mom came back, that the child would like, would angrily cling on to the mom. They would cry. They would, they would just seem very upset. Right. And so the two main things that he noticed was clingingness and anger. And the avoidant, he noticed that when mom was around, the avoidant actually didn't care too much. They were so consumed with playing with their toys and they were actually happy being by themselves. They didn't even bother looking at mom or seeking mom out. And the way that this shows up and manifests in our adult relationships is that the anxious really does feel angry that their partner can't meet their needs. And the avoidant really starts to recognize that they can't depend on people. And so they end up replacing people with things. As a doll, this looks like choosing to work more than being with someone that you care about because work has been the thing that is consistent in your life and actually meets your needs. Like work, the the idea is work won't let me down. People will. 
Right. Right. And so these behaviors, these attachment styles, they're actually defense mechanisms. They help protect you from getting hurt again. It's kind of an oxymoron because even though they're a sense of protection, these behaviors actually end up hurting us on a deeper level. Well, I mean, yeah. other than the secure attachment, the others are maladaptive. So, right. So th that's what we do. We, we adopt a lot of maladaptive coping mechanisms when we aren't really raised uh, or taught how to cope with life. And then we get to be adults and we have no way to do it. We're doing it the same way we did as a child, but that was for survival, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about um, attachment styles being defense mechanisms is that they can be changed. Yes, you use that as a, as a way of surviving and as a way of coping with what was happening to you in your environment. Right. But we can learn new coping skills. We can learn new mechanisms that are going to protect us and actually benefit us in the long run. Right. And it's imperative uh, if we're going to live a fulfilling, thriving life that we do develop yeah. healthy coping mechanisms. Otherwise, we just are floundering through life. We're just trying to make our way. And we often, like you said, um, try to match with people who also have issues. And then you wonder why it doesn't work out. So mm -hmm. um, I think we each need to do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for at least people who might fall into that avoidant behavior, what I hear from my avoidance a lot is, well, I don't really need people, right? Relationships aren't that important. <laughs> and that's kind of on the surface. And once we start talking, they recognize that they actually feel very alone and that they do wish they had someone in their life. And so even though their mind is saying, I don't need it because I've always relied on myself on a, on a more spiritual level, there is that need for connection because we're human, right? Our, our, our world really revolves around being social and wanting to be around people to, to build and to grow and to live a fuller life. So the study was done with mothers and babies uh, or young, young children, whatever. And, um, but if does the same thing happen, if the mother is not there and there's another caretaker that is supposed to be doing that role? Yeah. So even though the study was done on mothers, um, the parental figure is really going to establish what type of um, attachment style the child has based on the, the needs that were met. Okay. So if as a child, your needs were not met, whether it be from mom or from dad, you're going to develop a, a, a mechanism to help okay. you cope with that. All right. So dad can meet the needs as well. So if there's two parents, as long as your needs are met. Sometimes. As long as your needs are met. There's also another caveat here. So when we think of this as um, in, in the womb, right, or um, at a very, very young age, when you're six months or a year, the way this the way this study started to carry out and we started to notice that this actually follows in adulthood is there are different types of parenting styles. And depending on how your parent parented you, again, were they able to meet your needs? 
this really starts to tie into attachment wounds. And basically what this is, is this can happen when you were an adult, this can happen as a child, this can happen when you're 13 years old. An attachment wound is basically when the person closest to you, and this usually is our parents or a caregiver, right? Someone that is supposed to meet your needs when they're not able to meet your needs or when you, when you needed them and they weren't there for you. This, this is where really trauma is created. So let's say your parents went through a divorce Um, You were separated from mom because of a civil or criminal case. Um, Your mom had a mental illness. Anything that would separate you from your closest caregiver, that creates an attachment wound. And this is where we start to see those maladaptive behaviors. Wow. That happens to so many children, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, you probably said this already, but the attachment forms from birth to what age? The attachment style. It it really starts at six months. I think that's where his study started. Okay. Um, and then after that, it builds. So the child the child will develop that sense of security and safety okay. as to okay, my needs can be met. I am being taken care of. I can. I can um, feel close and know that my caregiver is available to me. So what happens if, if a child is, um, not with their mother initially, you know, sometimes you, people adopt children from foreign countries and they've been sitting in an orphanage for a while. And then Mm -hmm. somebody comes and becomes a wonderful mother is the attachment issue already the attachment problem already created by that point. The tendencies will be there, but that's, and that's kind of the same that happens with adulthood is that our main attachment tendencies will be there. We develop that out of survival, but if we go into that state of repair where we feel like we can trust someone, we feel very close, we're able to open up, um, we will start to incorporate those secure tendencies. Now, this is where it gets tricky. When stress or anxiety come up, that's where those tendencies can can really start. Those underlining tendencies, that whether it be the anxious or the avoidant, will will initially come up. But if you have enough resources and tools, and this is the biggest kind of um, foundation I have for my program, is I want to give you the tools. And I want to give you the resources because you're going to be triggered. That's actually normal, right? That's your body's way of saying, hey, something isn't right here. Right. And we need to be on alert. We need to be prepared, right? It's a, it's like, it's a survival, like even beyond uh, attachment styles, it's a survival. Our body, the, the. God created our body. And I don't know if. I can say that and, and be okay with that, but God created our bodies for, to make sure that we survive. <laughs> like he literally built in that fight or flight system so that we can survive. And so with, with that being said, when something stressful happens, 
you're naturally going to want to survive. And so the more tools and resources you have to do that in a healthy way, the easier life can be. Life is not easy, but when we have these tools in place, it's easier to go through those ups and downs. Because when fight or flight is triggered, our focus becomes like a tunnel vision, like, like we're, we're reduced just to survival and we can't think our way out. So, um, so that's why it's really important to develop these things. So you have something to call on and you don't freak out. That's one of the things, you know, if you have the tools, it's not about completely relieving these things from you, but it's about knowing that when they happen, you know what to do. You have the tools. It's very yes. important, right? I always say trauma can be erased. We can't like digitally go into our brains and delete what ha what has happened to us, right? And so the brain will always remember, will always have those memories of some of the most difficult things that have happened in our lives. And so your body will does remember that, right? And so it, it will get triggered, um, but you're right more resources, the better. Right, exactly. Um, so why don't you talk about, because your, your method, um, Empowered Women, uses EMDR and somatic therapy. So let's start with EMDR. Yeah. For those who are not aware of what it is. Can you explain that? Yeah, so EMDR, it's a mouthful of, of an acronym, but it's called Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. <laughs> Basically, what that means is it helps to take the emotional charge, desensitize a traumatic memory. So when we get triggered, you're getting triggered because your, your brain is remembering something that has happened in the past, and it's bringing up those same emotions. And so when we use EMDR, and you can use EMDR through um activating the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, which actually calms the nervous system. That's what we want to do. Our nervous system is, is basically the, the, the core of the fight or flight. It's where the fight or flight is activated. And remember the fight or flight is the survival base. And so if we can calm our bodies and let our bodies know, hey, it's safe. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We don't have to fight. This is where true healing happens. Because a lot of the times when we get triggered, because it comes from trauma, trauma, the more traumatic something was, the more distorted your thoughts will be. And so when we get triggered, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the times, what we're perceiving is not real danger. And what I mean by that, so if you in the past um, had a partner who was very abusive and anytime you got home, they would constantly question you, they would, they would um, criticize you, or they would blame you for cheating, like you were out with some other person, right? Now, fast forward, you being in a healthier relationship and it feeling safer, you come home and your partner lovingly asks, hey, hey, hon, where were you? Your mind is going to get triggered and think that you're being accused, blamed, 
criticized, shamed for going somewhere. And so your reaction is like, what do you mean? Why are you asking me? Do you not trust me? (laughs) It's that fight in you that is trying to protect yourself. And so when we're able to calm our nervous system down, the logical part will come in and say, oh, wait, my partner loves me. He's just worried. He was, or maybe he just wants to know where I was. He just wants to learn about me, right? And so that's the difference between a regulated nervous system and a triggered nervous system. Okay, thank you. That really explains a lot. I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. And um, EMDR is, so it's eye movement. So can you just generally explain what happens in, you know, while you're doing this process? Yeah, so um, the the older tradition was to use eye movements. Um, now that we've kind of moved into a virtual space, it makes it a little bit hard to use eye movements just because of the placement of the camera. And so now what we're doing is either using a tapping, which is a butterfly tap, and that activates. When you do alternative tappings, you actually activate the left and the right hemisphere. Okay. Um, I also use a virtual light bar and it's a little light that goes left and right. And that also activates what that, when that happens, um, the way the session would, would normally go is we would choose a target. We would choose a specific memory that has, that has created a lot of activation for your nervous system. And so when we use that memory, and we bring it to our consciousness, your body's going to start having all those emotions. And so through the EMDR process, whether it be the light or the tapping, we start to remind your body that you're safe, that it's okay to feel this, that you're not going to die, right? Because that's the biggest fear is that if we feel this, we're not going to make it. We can't handle it. I'm overwhelmed. And so we teach your body to be okay with these emotions Mm -hmm. because regulation is basically the rise and fall of an emotion. For a lot of us who've been traumatized, we don't know how to experience the rise and know that there will be a fall, that this emotion is not going to last forever. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. Yes. Um, So that's the EMDR. Now, somatic therapy obviously is working on physical, the physical body issues. And um, so many of these issues that people have are related to trauma, childhood, things like that. And um, I'm one of them. And no tests, no blood tests, no x-rays, no examinations ever reveal problem. Mm -hmm. Some people can be very sick with it. So how does somatic therapy work? Yeah. And so even though there's no, which is interesting because when you're in the emotion, you can actually measure the energy that you're having, right? And it probably takes a different type of, of equipment to measure that. Um, and so if you're feeling something, the energy in your body is going to, um, reflect that. What somatic 
ther- modality does is it connects you to the energy in your body that you're feeling that you are actually noticing it, whether it's happening or not, you're noticing it and it is happening for you. And so when we connect, we regulate. A lot of the times what happens is that we were taught that dealing with your feelings means to not have them. Don't have it. Don't be angry. Stop crying, right? Be strong. We turn, we actually are trained to turn off our emotions, which disconnects us from our bodies. And so you might be walking around um, sick to your stomach and completely ignoring it because that's how you were taught to somehow make things better. But you quickly realize that it doesn't make it any better, that you're still stick to your stomach. And now you're throwing up and vomiting. Right, it impedes your ability to thrive in your adulthood. Yeah. And so when you don't emotionally express, because that's a way of releasing it, it will manifest physically. This is where a lot of autoimmune diseases actually stem from. Um, PCOS is a really, really big one that a lot of women suffer from and chronic illness, um, where there's pain, like you, you're experiencing pain in your body and you're like, I don't know why this is happening or where this is coming from. A lot of those women, there's trauma. They have a history, a deep, deep history of trauma. Right. Right. And so regulation actually means connection and and somatic therapy does that for us so um what are some of the signs that we've had trauma in our um yeah one of the biggest signs is Mm -hmm. when you've noticed that you're reacting to something that after your emotion comes down you're like why did i react like that why is my why is my emotion so intense? And people tell me that it's not that big of a deal, but for me it is. Right. Right? That's a really big sign. Taking things personal. So when someone is talking about themselves and you automatically um assume that they're talking about you, but they're actually talking about their friend and how they were angry at their friend and now you're questioning if th- this person is angry at you. Right. right. You make things about you and it's hard to see the bigger picture. Um, if you are experiencing physical symptoms, um, like, like it making you sick to your stomach when you're having to talk about your feelings or you notice that you hold back a lot or you're not able to let people in. Like I had, um, a client who could not commit to people. That's when we know we've had trauma when we're not able to understand why we're doing something, but we're like actively and angrily saying, I have to do this, even though I don't know why I'm doing it. That's a really clear sign that we've had some traumatic um, experiences in our past. Why do we tend to ruminate over things, just keep playing them around and around and we won't let it release? Why do we do that? Yeah. So a big reason why we keep thinking about 
certain things and we become preoccupied in our thoughts is because we're either ruminating about things that have already happened and we wish that we can change them. So thinking about the past, or we think about what we want to do, but are so afraid of doing like the future. And so when we're in the state of anger and fear, we actually can't do nothing about it until we take some kind of action. And a lot of the times with the past, when we're thinking about the past, we cannot go back into the past and change it. And so when you're constantly thinking about it, the way that our mind works is if you think it, it can be done. That's what the mind thinks. The mind is very present. We as humans, we have this the, the ability to think about things that cannot be done. Animals don't have that. An animal thinks that they're hungry and they're going to go after the the other lion or the other monkey or another animal to eat it because it's hungry. It will do something in the present moment. And humans don't. We think about things that we have no power or control over. Right. And it keeps us stuck. Because the mind is saying, no, but I can't do something. I want to change it. I need to change it. I messed up. How do I change it? And it's like, we can't. We can't go back in time anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So that is that ever a process that somebody wants to um, allow? So, so does rumination serve any purpose initially? If it continues, I know it's a problem, but initially, mm -hmm. is this a natural way that we tend to process things that happen to us? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thinking about things um, creates an emotion. And whether it be shame, whether it be guilt, whether it be fear. And remember, our emotions are a way of knowing how to take action. They actually are our guides so that we can take the proper action. And what I mean by that is if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling bad about what you've done and now you feel about, and now you feel bad about who you are, because that's the difference. Shame is I am a bad person. Guilt is I did something bad. If you're feeling bad about who you are, the action and the power, and this is why my program is called Empowered Love, because when we are stuck in a traumatic cycle, we feel we have no power. When you're ruminating, you have no power. It's when we take that emotion and say, this is what I'm feeling. What can I do about it? And so it really opens up the door for us to step into our power. How does this play out in, um, <clears throat> in relationships? I know like on your website, one of the things that you say is you're having the same fight with your partner over and over. You don't know if you should stay, if you should leave, if it's you, if it's the other person. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what are some of the ways that it will play out in, <clears throat> in adult relationships? Yeah, so when if you if you're dating some of this like anxious attached or insecure attachment the way that it comes up is you start to get consumed with whether or not they like you 
Does this, is this person interested in me? I mean, and when I say consumed, it takes up your thoughts for the, for the day. You can't really concentrate on other things because, okay. you know, why aren't they texting me back? Right. Do they like me? Are they so interested in our relation, in our romantic relationship? The way this shows up is if you're having the same fight, right? The constant same fight, they don't understand you or you're not being heard or your partner doesn't care about you. That's a, a really common one that I hear. He doesn't even care about me. He's so selfish. He only cares about himself. Right. And so it really feels like you don't have a connection with this person. Yeah. And that may or may not be true. Right. Or you or the, the ways that it's being communicated is not allowing for understanding. So if you've really felt that your partner didn't care about you, what does that actually mean? And what would make you feel cared for? And have you asked for that? Right. No, he sh if if they love me, that they should know how to do no, this, no. right? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. We're not, they're not mind readers, right? Right, right. We, we tend to take responsibility for ourselves and when things play out and in relationships, um, even when the, the partner isn't doing their share, as happens with a narcissistic personality disordered person, um, the other person is still claiming their share. I, I, there's something that I've done. There's something that I've done. It's very hard mm -hmm. to let go of that mm -hmm. and to be, believe that maybe there's not. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're being gaslit. Maybe, you know, they're, they're playing games with you um and people have a hard time separating from that like yeah how could it not how could i have no effect whatsoever in this in this yeah. problem <clears throat> so that's a tough one yeah no, uh narcissists uh, there's a category so they're a part of the category for an avoidant type so there's different types of avoidance, but a narcissist is one of them. Okay. And usually avoidance team up with anxious. They are like magnets for one another. <laughs> they are literally attracted to one another because they're the yin and the yang. And there's something true about we opposites attract. There is something true to that. And so the narcissist has qualities that the avoid uh, that the anxious wish that they had. And the avoidant has uh, wants qualities that the anxious has. And so they really, really come together. <laughs> and a big reason for um, the partner of the narcissist to get into this cycle of self-blame and full responsibility is that that is actually a very childlike response. And what I mean by that is children are very egocentric, meaning that they make everything about themselves. And so if you've been traumatized as a child and nobody processed it with you, like your parents were divorced or dad left, because nobody processed it with you, you're automatically going to assume that they left because of you. You did something wrong. You should have put your toys away. You shouldn't have not, yell, not yelled at dad, right? Like something about you made that person go away. 
And so we take this uh, egocentrism um, into our adult relationships, where when something goes wrong, we automatically take responsibility for it. This is why it's easy to take things personal, because we make it about ourselves. Does everybody do that, no matter their attachment style? Do we all tend to do that? I think to some degree we can, because there's that self-awareness of like, what am I doing Mm -hmm. right there? That is a power move. And that's actually healthy to take some accountability. The problem is, and we, when we take full accountability, because there's so many other factors at play and that's the adult recognizing that there's actually a bigger picture here that I'm not recognizing. Right. Right. And that's really hard to see when you're stuck in the middle of something like that. Yes. Um, You say um, during an argument, you may stay silent or say things in an aggressive way and then later feel regretful. Some people are become conflict avoidant. They can't Mm -hmm. deal with conflicts. Mm -hmm. So what's that about? Yeah, so a big reason why there's a shutdown when something really either painful happens or they feel criticized or just a negative emotion comes up for them is because it's too overwhelming. Okay. And when something is too overwhelming, it puts us, I always like to talk about how emotions, we categorize them as either being Um, I want you to imagine like a traffic light. So the red, the yellow, and the green. Green is when we're regulated. Yellow is when we're triggered. And red is when we're in complete distress. When you haven't learned to regulate, you go immediately to to red. Zero to 100. Real quick. (laughs) So you're in the red. When conflict arises, if you're in the red, you feel powerless. And so you, you, that's your coping skill is to shut down. It's too overwhelming. I can't, I can't is the words I hear from my clients. I can't deal with it. How and do we, so, how do, how does, how do people overcome this fear of conflict? So when we learn to connect with the emotion, it makes it so that we can deal with it. Okay. So we and just basically practice, escape the emotion and go from zero to a hundred and then we can't deal with it. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so that there's a, there's a behavior called stonewalling. That's a really big one where mm-hmm. I can't respond. And so I'm just going to go in mm-hmm. and it's safer to go in because I avoid any of the, the back and forth. I avoid you criticizing me more. Right. I just avoid the anger altogether. And some people are so conflict avoidant that they literally avoid situations um, that they don't feel capable of managing. So I would imagine that this is something that you take that's practiced in everyday life so that you can build this muscle. Yeah, I had a client who um, every time she would have every time her and her partner would argue, she would disassociate. Like she would go off into a whole different thing and she wouldn't even remember what her partner said. She would completely blank out, right? And so 
that is a really good example of how even when we're even though we're not recognizing what is going on, your body's just naturally going to take over <laughs> to protect yourself. And so the more we learn to have a relationship with our emotions, because that's the biggest thing is that for some people, they think, oh, well, emotions don't matter. Emotions make you weak, right? We have these really negative beliefs around emotions. And so when we can create a relationship with them, this is where true healing happens. Yes. So it's so well explained. Thank you for that. That really You're does welcome. explain a lot. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> um, the gloom and doom, when something upsetting happens, you get stuck in your head and you just go to the worst. You just go to the worst. Why do we do that? Yeah. So worst case scenario right jumping to conclusions um we do that because there's a couple reasons one it could be that bad things were always happening growing up and so it was literally worst case scenario things you were constantly dealing with crises right. and so your 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 survival was to always prepare or always be or always cope with these really, really bad things happening. Right. And so as an adult, you are literally geared and wired to expect the worst so that you can protect yourself. Mm. The other thing too is the worst case scenario or some of the assumptions that we start making up in our minds or these scenarios actually come from past experiences. So that example that I gave about the you coming home and you being in an abusive relationship, because that has actually happened, you're going to think about those same things happening. Um, and it comes from memories. So whatever was in your memory bank, that's what's going to come out in your thoughts. That's what you're going to be wired to think about. And can yeah. we, you know, if we've been taught to, or we've grown up with this pattern of, um, you know, something's always happening. And so we have to be on guard for it. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we can stop it from happening um, and, or that we will be prepared for it. So it's really kind of a, a really wasted energy. What's a better way to do that? Yeah. And so when our minds are thinking about these worst case scenarios, because that's the fear right? The fear is something bad is going to happen. And so when we can learn to understand that fear is showing up, we can actually dial into what I call the circle of control, right? And so when you learn to understand like, what can I control? And what can I control? Okay. Because again, the mind, it's only going to think what it can, what is actually possible. Okay. And so if it's not, if you're thinking about what is not possible, then you're going to end up hitting a wall because you're going to try and do something that is not possible. All your efforts are going to go into something that actually cannot be done. And this depletes us. This is actually the definition of depression when you're doing something that is not moving you forward. Okay. When you're doing something that is actually creating more um, 
anguish and like turmoil and your efforts are going to waste, right? Try, 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 try working on something that's really, really challenging and you're not getting any progress. Like exactly, exactly. you're going to get frustrated and be like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Right. That's how, that's how our brains are. If we're trying to do something that is not creating any effort, we're going to give up. And so when we pour more energy and effort into things that are possible and that actually is going to move us forward, this is going to give us power and motivation to keep going. That makes sense. I always tell clients, especially clients who are experiencing depression or having a really hard time doing things. Um, I always say, start small, do something that like for working out, especially for depression. Um, it's really, really important to move and get your body moving. And most people, when they think of working out, they think of going to the gym. Like that's daunting for someone who's never stepped in a gym, who hasn't moved their body in years. And so the way to think about this is just walk around the house. Walk around the house to the brain. That's something that you start to recognize. Oh yeah, that is something I can do. That doesn't feel so challenging. And so when we can remove the, 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 the really big challenge out of the way, it's easier to do things. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And this is the same with relationships. So if you're someone who's experiencing a lot of turmoil and challenge in your relationship, trying to trying to heal your trauma all at once or trying to fix this 10-year relationship that has been having problems in in just one way, that's really that's almost like alarming to the brain of like I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Right. This is why using practical tools and I'm, I'm, I'm really big on practicality. Like give, give me something that makes sense to me and that I can implement right now because I need to know that I'm moving forward. I need to understand that things are working right for some people. They're not like that for, for others. They are, Um, but with my healing method, um, I like to use a lot of, of, of tools that you can use right in the moment to start feeling better now so that we can, we can increase that state of motivation. Okay. Can you give us an example of one? Yeah. So with, when we go through the EMDR process, Mm -hmm. um, one of the first, um, skills that we learn is that tapping. And I teach you how to do it. I walk you through it. We practice. So for the remainder of the week, so within my program is 12 weeks and um, we meet once a week. And so I'm only seeing clients for one hour out of how many hours in the whole week, right? Exactly. And so every session I teach them a tool that they can use and practice. And I have them do it every day so that they start building this into their mind so that they know that this is possible and it works. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, What about, some people are worriers and they think that if they worry, they can prevent something from happening. Do you, do you run into that? 
people say to me, well, if I don't worry, you know, something bad's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do we do this to ourselves? It's, it makes us feel terrible. <laughs> it does, but it's a way of control. It's a way of gaining control over our lives. If I worry, I feel like I'm in control. If I don't worry, that makes me feel out of control. Okay. And so the way that we start to change this is again, we need control in our lives. And there's a lot of people that, you know, feel that control is, can be a bad thing and it can, if we over control something, but in order to feel autonomous and worthy and confident, we have to have a level of control in our lives. And so to tell someone, don't worry, is basically telling them don't have control. (laughs) And that would make anyone crazy because we need some level of control. And so the way that we do this is we re reframe the, what you're controlling or re I'm sorry, redirect what you're controlling. So instead of trying to control within your thoughts, you control within your actions and you go back to that circle of control. What am I in control over? If you're worried about your partner um, not getting home, I have clients who really, really fear that something bad is going to happen to their partners, right? Right? That they're not going to make it home. There's going to be a car accident. There's going to be a robbery of some kind. And so they're in their minds and they're worrying and this helps them have a sense of control And so when we redirect that and I say, well, did you call him to see if he was okay? No. Okay. Let's, let's start there. Why don't you, why don't you call so that your mind can quiet down because really you're worried if he's okay or not, or if she's okay or not. And so when we take that action and we verify that they're okay, then the mind can be like, oh, okay. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I already checked. I already figured out if this is true or not. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was going to say something about worry, but I forgot what I was going to say. It'll come back to me. That's okay. Um, (laughs) Pleasing. Oh, that's another one. Um, a lot of people learned that pleasing gave them some emotional security in childhood and they take it into adulthood mm-hmm. and then they become doormats and they become upset because they're giving more than the other person's giving. Yeah. So, right. So how do we stop being pleasers? Oh, so <laughs> that's a big one, huh? That's a big one. Yeah. So to, to please, or the reason that we really lean towards pleasing and, you know, sacrificing our own needs for other people is so that other people will value us. So it really stems from a self-worth place of, I don't feel worthy until someone else reassures me that I am worthy. And the reassurance comes from the pleasing, doing things for you, 
showing up for you, right? Because if you love me, right? If you accept me, then I'm worthy. I'm worthy of your love. I'm worthy of your time. And so this, this really forms when we didn't get our needs met. And so one of the mechanisms is, well, I can work for it. I can work for your love. Mm. It, it's conditional. Mm -hmm. When in reality, you are worthy because you are. There's no reason. You don't have to do anything. And so learning that, for some people hearing that, they're like, I don't believe that. Right? I don't believe that I'm worthy because I am. I have yes. to work for it. That's, that's, that's literally the, the belief, the core belief that has cycled through your, through your upbringing. Right. I hear and so that when, a lot. Yeah. And so when you learn that you're worthy just because you are, and obviously that there's, there's a, there's a practice that goes along with this. Um, but that's when we start to break that cycle of people pleasing. So you're talking about external validation versus internal validation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And external, and I always tell clients this, like external validation isn't bad. We all love it to get externally validated, right? For someone to tell us how amazing we are, or what they think of us, but to make that the only way that we feel worthy or the only way that we feel good about ourselves, it creates this really rigid way of looking at ourselves. Anytime we don't have choices or there's no sense of flexibility, then this is where we almost feel like controlled by something or someone. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so, I, yeah, I always talk about like the spectrum of thinking mm -hmm. and the spectrum of doing, meaning that the more options we have, the more resources, let's go back to resources, the more resources that you have, the easier it's going to be to not like base your worth or your love on just one thing, right? Like that saying, like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's the same thing with our worth. We can't just depend on one thing for our worth. We have to have multiple things that make us feel worthy and good about ourselves. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, these are, these are such important important things for my listeners to hear. A lot of people who listen to me are going through um, abuse, uh, emotional abuse, and probably other forms of abuse as well. And um, it really stops them in their tracks. And it also brings up a lot of these. Well, okay, first of all, if you're a pleaser, your, your chances of getting uh, picked out by a predator are pretty good. Um, we don't want to do that. I was, I was tell people, um, you know, cause they're like, how am I going to go out into the world? I'm like, you just don't put that pleasing side first. You know, <laughs> yes. you don't want to show yes. that you're this mar you know, marshmallow, sweet, understanding person because predators just <laughs> suck. Yes. <right> to <laughs> And there's, there's a lot of predators out there. So we have to be very, very careful with how we represent ourselves. Initially. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I actually am working with a client right now. And actually, there's a couple clients who are dating, who I have that are dating. And the dating world right now, I mean, 
aside from just the societal challenges, it's so hard. It's really, really difficult. And so one of the biggest things is how much you share about yourself and how you share it. So one of my clients, um, she, she was divorced because her partner, her husband cheated on her and she's like, well, how do I bring that up? Do I say that my husband left me? Do I, do I say that I was, you know, that my husband cheated on me? And I said, when you say that you, that your husband cheated on you or that your husband left you, guess who has the power in that statement? Mm. Your husband, the guy, right? You've made him completely gave your power away. Yes. And so what I, what I said is you rephrase it in a way that makes you have power. So if someone asks you, yeah, you know, um, have you ever been married? I was married and I chose to leave that relationship because they were unfaithful and I don't tolerate unfaithfulness. (laughs) Do you have the power in that response? Right. right. You don't tolerate that because you could have gone back. I told, and I, this is, I said, um, we're not lying. You could have stayed in the relationship because mm-hmm. he eventually wanted you back. You could have forgave him, right? but you chose not to. And that's your power. You chose not to. Yes, that happened to you, but you decided to still walk away even when something terrible happened. And oversharing is a problem. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I give people a dialogue, <laughs> like say these words. Yes. Do not add, do not add or enhance anything. Just say these words. And it's so hard for oversharing. Yes. That, right? <laughs> yes. I just had a conversation about that yesterday. I say, don't, you're, you're just using two, two sentences to describe this. No right. more. Right. And so... <laughs> You know, because I, I used to be an overshare. I've corrected a lot of this stuff, so I've been there. But, um, you know, one of the ways I think is that's good to break that pattern is to redirect questions. So when someone, instead of sitting there and, and have, just talking, start asking them questions. Redirect yeah. it to them. Redirect it to them so you don't have to vomit up your entire life. Yes. I always, I always say this, I describe the dating scene as women who, and men who are people pleasers will go in like a job interview and they will pretend that they are the interviewee. (laughs) And what I mean by that is they get dressed up for the other person, right? When you go to a job interview, interview, what are you doing? You're trying to please your employer so that they hire you. Right. We do the same we're doing. How can I make him like me? What can I say? What can I wear? What can I do? My whole focus is them. Right. So instead I say, go in like the interviewer. You're Uh, interviewing them. They need to impress you. What are they doing so that you can like them? And I same with an interview. When you go in for a job, do you actually like them? Can they do things to better your life? Because they're hiring you, right? So when we flip the mm-hmm. script, mm-hmm. 
we have more power and it actually allows us to really recognize if we want to, if we like this person, right? And that's so helpful. It is. Everything that you've said today has been so helpful. I'm taking a lot of notes. Good. Because I'm I, glad. You know, a lot of these, the way that you say these things, um, these concepts and the, you know, the way that you phrase it really helps people to understand the mechanics of what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need to do that in order to be able to, to change it. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I, I named my business the Authentic Lab because I feel, I, I believe that authenticity is one of the key ingredients to being able to connect not only socially, mm -hmm. but also inter internally. If we're not authentic with how we're feeling, then it's going to be really difficult to understand ourselves. And, it, and, and that's why I like to break things down in a way that I uh, needed to understand when I was just learning these things. Okay. Because when I speak to them as a therapist and I'm using language that doesn't read, like some people don't even know how to verbalize their emotions. They oh, have no understanding many, of it. Many. It's mind blowing. But then I remember, oh, I also was like that. I didn't, I didn't know how to say my feelings. Right. And so I always try and remember what it was like when I first started learning this, because for that person who I'm helping and who's in front of me, that's where they're at. Right? Exactly. Great. Oh, what a good conversation. Annabelle, do you have a website? I'm sure you do. I know. Just tell us what it is. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm at um, authentic slash lab.com. So www, very easy, authentic slash lab.com. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so anybody that wishes to work with you, you work virtually mostly now? I work virtually. Yes. Um, and right now in about two weeks, so I don't know when this episode will be posted, but it will be, today. um, today. Oh, today. Okay. So June 17, I will be starting the new cohort for the group coaching, um, for the empowered love program. It's where I take a very small, uh, group of intimate women who want to change their attachment style. And I really break down the three, uh, pillars that I talk about, which is healing, healing the trauma, breaking the cycle and actively loving. So really practicing all of these skills in your relationship. Um, and so if that's something that any of your listeners are interested in, definitely reach out. I'm very active on Instagram. That's kind of the main platform that I share a lot of tips and awareness and education around attachment styles. And for Instagram, I'm at the authentic dot lab. Um, and so, yeah, definitely connect with me. So good to talk to you today. I know we got, I got a lot out of this. I'm sure my listeners did too. I really, I do. I thank you so much for being my guest today. Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you're you. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.